the Bulwark Podcast. It is yet another hot summer Monday. I'm Amanda Carpenter, joined by my colleague, Will Salatin. And we are extra grateful to be joined by Will today because he told me that he's recovering from COVID. So how are you doing, Will? Uh, thank you, Amanda. And yes, not only am I happy to be back with you, I'm happy to be back with humanity, with civilization. <laughs> You know, it's two and a half years into COVID. I finally got COVID um, and it, it was okay. It was like four or five days. It was like a couple of days of achy flu, a couple of days of cold. Um, it was a little bit weird, but it was familiar with stuff, you know, that I had known before. And I'm, I will say this, although I am vaxxed, double vaxxed and double boosted, this thing still got me. And I think it's kind of interesting what happened in my house. I just wanted to like tell people about it. So we have four people in our household, me, my wife, my son, and my daughter. My daughter is the one who was the, she brought it home, basically. This is how COVID works for those of you who are parents. <laughs> if you have small children, your children bring the COVID home to you. If you have older children who have already graduated from school, the small children that they are counseling at their camp job, <laughs> give them the COVID and they bring it home. So anyway, the COVID came into the house. So we got four people, right? And all of us are vaxxed. All of us got the first booster. And the, the person who did worst was my daughter, who had, I mean, none of us terrible, but she had only the one booster, right? My wife and I, who had the second booster, did better. The person who did best was my son, who didn't even get sick. He didn't, he tested negative the whole time. He did not have the second booster, but what he had was a prior infection with B2. So what I wanted to tell people about COVID and vaccination is do get the vaccine, do get the boosters. The, the, the vaccine helps you, the boosters help you. But it is also true that the, the uh, variant matters. And so my son's infection with an Omicron variant was more effective in protecting him against getting infected at all with this B5 than my wife and I getting the booster that was for the Wuhan virus, right? And what I want to tell people about the vaccines that are coming up is in, in the fall, the vaccines they're going to be giving you are going to be Omicron specific. They're not B5 specific, but they are Omicron. Mm -hmm. And so go get them because they will help you either not get infected at all or help you get through this as I believe these vaccines help me and my wife get through ours. How do you know which virus you think you're being infected by? Are you just going on how the thing is mutated and what we're hearing in the news? Or did you get tested? Tell me about how you tested for all this. And did you isolate? Did you quarantine? Or did you just figure everybody in the house is going to get it and suck it up? Yeah, it's a little bit complicated. The variants are like they're popular in whatever area they're in at that time. So my son, we don't know for sure that he had B2, but that's what was in the area when he got sick. I don't know that we have B5, but that's what's in the area here. Um, and that's um, in suburban Washington, D.C. And so, you know, I don't know for sure. We, when, I, when my daughter came home, she thought she had strep. And mm -hmm. so for a couple of days, that's what we thought. And if we'd known it was COVID, of course, maybe we, I honestly think, Amanda, once it's in your house, it's really hard. Yeah. To, I mean, B5 is so unbelievably contagious. If it's in your house, you're probably going to get it. So I would still advise people to minimize your exposure, like the less of the virus you inhale, the better off you're likely to be. And it matters how sick you get, but boy, it's, it's really hard to prevent that. 
I'm just feeling nervous that this is all going to hit again right in time for back to school. And it just seems like now we're just, you know, people who are vaccinated, take your chances, try to mitigate your exposure to it, stay home if you're sick. But it is amazing to me that we still haven't really gotten control of the testing. You know, I am worried about it. I'm thinking about stocking up on more tests, but at the same time, I'm looking at the price tag on that where it's 20 bucks for two tests. It's like, do I really want to blow an extra 100, 120 bucks at the store to have all these tests on hand? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. And I, the schools are not going to be shutting down in a midterm election year. So I am just, I am very curious about how this is going to be handled in August when schools are coming back. This thing is ripping through the population because it is so contagious. And what we do, if we've just reached the point where we just carry on and all the people who insisted on staying open through all this says, see, we were right. This isn't a big deal, but it's actually not that big of a deal now because we have the protection of the vaccines. Yeah. And the thing that I want people to understand about the vaccines is, I mean, it is amazing what they've accomplished with vaccination. And this happened, let's be clear, under the Trump administration, it was Operation Warp Speed. That was in, an incredible pace of work to get a vaccine turned around. And it was out within a year. But the virus is mutating, has mutated at such an amazing rate that, you know, the, the, the vaccine simply loses its ability to prevent you from getting infected, right? You, it does help you. Look, nobody in my house got seriously ill and we, we credit the vaccine for that. And those of you who have taken precautions, vaccines, masks for a couple of years, it was worth it. It was worth it because the disease is not as bad as it used to be and the therapies are better. But, and here's one other thing I wanted to say, Amanda, it is one of the most disturbing things that I heard on the Sunday shows. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, mentioned that they've had, the government has had a vaccine for Omicron, for B1 Omicron, sitting on the shelf for some time. What? And it does not have it out there. It's not out there. And I think the reason is that Omicron has mutated so fast that we're now at B4. B5 and there's already a B6 coming. Like if they bring out the B1 vaccine and it doesn't work, you know, people are going to sort of lose faith in that. So they're going to have one that's a new one that's based on B4. Anyway, the point is uh, they will have a B4 vaccine out and they should get that out pronto. And people should get that because based on my son's experience, he never tested positive. He tested negative the whole time, even though B5, this incredibly contagious B5 was in our house. To me, that's a testament to, you know, it, just get something that is Omicron specific. Get that vaccine when it comes out. I agree 100%. For any of our doctor friends out there, friends in the Biden administration who might be listening, please be aggressive with the guidance for boosters for kids. You know, it was a few weeks ago, months ago, it was announced that school-aged children would be eligible for a booster. I from where I sit in West Virginia, I've looked for information on how to get those boosters. I've called people. They say they're not available. I haven't seen any guidance or rollouts of that program from where I sit. Doesn't mean that people in highly populated areas can get appointments to get it. I've heard people say, well, I got it in Washington, D.C. Telling you, a 50-mile radius of where I am haven't been available without you know spending my whole day searching. And so Let's get that going, whatever we can. We can't go into year three of this, but 
just to switch subjects here, you know who might want a sick day and maybe five to 14 days of quarantine this week? Many people maybe, but my money's on Steve Bannon, who's faces jury selection for his trial for contempt charges today. And of course, he thought that this wouldn't go to trial. He had a last-ditch effort last week to attempt to say, oh, oh, January 6th committee, I'll come testify. I'll talk to you live today. And the court says, no, you're going to trial. The damage is done. You refuse to talk. Um, We're going to face this thing. But he's been on his podcast promising to go medieval on these people and that he doesn't need any thoughts and prayers. He'd rather have prayers for his enemies because we're going to quote, savage these people. So it sounds like he has the right, he's in the right headspace for this trial. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, this is Steve Bannon, right? He's, he's, a, he's an angry podcaster. He's like riling up his people. I, I, I don't think it's a good legal strategy. I, I don't, and Amanda, I don't understand what was this game they were playing, he, he and his lawyer, with the committee that, like, there was an offer to testify, but he wanted to do it on TV? Was that it? Like, he was he wanted to turn their proceeding, which was a fact-finding proceeding, into his kind of thing, which was a show, right? He wanted to, like, do some sort of angry speech against them on TV. How was that going to work? Well, if you look at the approach that has been consistent with Bandon throughout the Trump era, is that they don't play by the rules. They don't play by the laws. They don't care about this because everything is shoved into the court of public opinion. And if you can win the politics, you can really change the tide and get law enforcement, et cetera, to probably back off. I think that was the whole thing. It wasn't necessarily Trump needed more people representing him on the committee. But once you politicize this thing, it has a way of making maybe people in the Department of Justice being even more skittish about going after these figures. Huh. Well, I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's worked. Uh, I think, in fact, the committee has pretty much ascertained from Bannon's behavior that I don't think they believed they were going to get anything useful from him. Yeah. I mean, and and that kind of that kind of robbed him of any leverage that he might have thought he had in terms of you know, getting this trial bumped back or, or dropped somehow that he was going to like, the committee was going to say it was okay now that he was going to testify under on his terms. I can totally see the committee saying, look, we don't want this guy putting on a circus. We're not going to let him testify under different rules from anybody else and, you know, tell it to the judge. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, Adam Kinzinger was on CBS yesterday and somewhere along the way he was asked, well, wouldn't you like Trump to come testify And kind of to that point, Kinzinger said, yeah, maybe, but we don't need him because we have all the relevant information. And, and, you know, kind of he didn't, Adam Kinzinger didn't say this, I'm saying this, but what is Trump going to say? I mean, he's a known liar. You would only give him a platform. And if you were able to establish all the events minute by minute that happened on January 6th, what do you need Donald Trump for? And it's sort of the same with Steve Bannon. Everything incriminating Steve Bannon has done has pretty much been in the public sphere. We got that information last week in the hearings that he spoke twice to Trump on January 6th. And after that first conversation, he took to the airwaves and told his listeners that it's all converging now. This is the point of attack. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen and strap in. 
I mean, it seemed like he had a very clear view of what was going to happen. And then there was that leaked audio from Mother Jones that came out as well, where he was predicting before the election exactly how Donald Trump would create a conspiracy theory around the mail-in ballots and declare victory that night. And so, again, all of this stuff is out in the public. They don't need to talk to them. Of course, it's good that they press the charges and force his hand to show that you cannot defy Congress in this manner, but they don't need him. Can I say a thank you on the air to Steve Bannon for that Mother Jones recording? He, he may not provide any other evidence voluntarily, but that evidence is glorious. So this is a recording. So, so for folks who are not familiar with this, the uh, Axios had reported on, uh, I think it was November 1st, so before the election, that Trump had this was going to do this red mirage thing. Right? They all knew, everybody in the White House knew the Republicans were going to have the early vote, the votes that showed up earliest in the reporting on election night. Then they, so, and that you claim victory, even though you don't know that that's you're going to win. But Bannon, being the you know strategic genius that he is, holds a meeting in which he says the following, and it is recorded on tape. And Mother Jones then gets a hold of the tape. This, by the way, was on October 31st. So this is about four days before the election. Bannon says on the tape, quote, that doesn't mean he's a winner, meaning Trump. Trump's going to go out and claim he's a, good, a winner. Quote, that doesn't mean he's a winner. He's just going to say he's a winner, unquote. Now, those two sentences together are as clear a statement as you will get from anyone around Donald Trump that he knew that he intended to lie, right? That he intended to represent to the public that he knew that he was going to win when in fact he could not know that, did not know that. So it's not Donald Trump's words, unfortunately, but it is Steve Bannon's and Bannon was involved in the plotting as you were saying. So I'm hopeful that that, that quote can, can be uh, used as evidence in, in any proceedings further. Yeah. By the way, I've just, I was going back through Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker's book, I Alone Can Fix It, um, just to refresh her reporting on the Secret Service stuff, which I want to get into in a minute. But it was interesting in light of that Bannon revelation about how Bannon knew exactly how Trump was going to play this. When you contrast that with the story that people like Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien gave to reporters about his role in that time, because when you read through their chronicle, you have these people who obviously said that they were the ones trying to explain to Trump what was going to happen. So there's this scene on election day when Trump comes in and Bill Stepien gives this briefing about how everyone be patient because it's going to look really good for Trump in the beginning, but then it's going to turn overnight. And sort of the theme that I've noticed with a lot of the reporting that I, I think may change with the upcoming hearing on Thursday is that you only hear the one side of the story from people like Bill Stepien about what they said in these meetings and not necessarily what Trump said uh, in reply to them. Same thing with Kevin McCarthy when he was talking, he told reporters about how he called Trump on January 6th and asked him to do something, but he never really said what Trump said back to him. And so when it comes to this idea of how Trump was going to cast conspiracies around the election, I just... I, I don't believe Steve Bannon was the only one who knew how Trump was going to play that when they were having specific conversations on election day 
about the red mirage and why they should be patient. And then you have Donald Trump taking that podium essentially in the middle of the night, declaring victory outright, saying the election was a fraud, and Mike Pence standing so dutifully right there behind him. Yeah, and uh, for for people who aren't familiar with this, the the reporting from um, Axios was that Donald Trump literally rehearsed this, right? Uh, I I should check this, but I believe that November 1st report from Axios was that Trump had literally talked about, they had talked about going to the microphone, going to the podium, and saying that he had won the election, that he was he wasn't directly. Yeah, this involved. was uh, prodded on by Rudy Giuliani, of all people, who may or may not have been intoxicated while giving that advice. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, and and just to be clear about this, there's no dispute about what Amanda just said. There's no dispute that all of these people told Donald Trump how the red mirage would work, just like they all told him that, you know, there was no evidence of election fraud later on, right? So the only question about Donald Trump, there are only two possibilities. One is that he heard them, he understood what they said, he knew it was true, and he went out and said, told the opposite again and again and again. He was a liar. The other possibility, the only other possibility is he wasn't lying. He was simply told things face to, to his face by many people he trusted with lots of evidence and every time refused to believe it. Now, this is, of course, about the functioning of American democracy and who should be the president of the United States, who was the legitimate president of the United States. So that other possibility, other than lying, is that Donald Trump is so unbelievably impervious and delusional that you should never, ever allow such a person to be to, to be restored to the presidency of the United States. So under either of these scenarios, this guy should never be president again. Now I want to get into what turned out to be big news at the tail end of last week, and that was the fact that members of the Secret Service had deleted critical communications regarding events related to January 5th and January 6th. Now, this was kind of a slow burn that oddly was dropped in the middle of the week, when the Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security sent a letter to Congress saying, hey, want to let you know, essentially, we were told by the Secret Service that there was some kind of routine program to reset phones back to factory settings. And whoopsie, they don't have the communications from January 5th and January 6th that we requested. And of course, maybe not, of course, the Secret Service said, okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with what we did, all part of routine process. And then that DHS inspector general went straight up to Capitol Hill, briefed all nine members of the committee, and gave them a fuller picture of that story. He said that, according to reporting, that the... Secret Service 1 did not engage in an after-action report of those events. He said that they were not fully cooperating with the investigation. And he also said that he had gone to the DHS secretary many times to get assistance to try to get these communications, and he did not get the assistance, which is why he felt compelled to go to Congress with that information. So what did you think when that story started to leak out? Well, it certainly sounds to me, Amanda, like this inspector general is saying, I'm trying to do my job here. 
the people who are supposed to comply with my requests are not doing so. And so I'm coming to tell you because you've got the heavy hand. Now, of course, the ultimate heavy hand is the is the Justice Department prosecuting people, but but the committee um, is at least a separate a separate entity and has some power. And hopefully, what seems to be happening, if I understood what Adam Kinzinger said on uh, Face the Nation on Sunday, is that there's there's some squirming going on, and maybe the that's the in fact the Secret Service does have these texts somewhere that there's some. IT situation going on where they change systems and that they can get them and that the threat of Congress doing something against them is going to somehow induce them to cough up the text. Yeah. What struck me is that usually events don't move this quickly because, I mean, hours after that briefing between the inspector general and the committee was concluded, they issued a subpoena for the Secret Service to produce those communications. And the January 6th committee is moving swiftly and aggressively, but things usually don't move that fast up on Capitol Hill. And so I was struck by how quickly you had the the letter from DHS, the briefing, and the subpoena. Boom, boom, boom. And then you had members of the January 6th committee not only uh, previewing the upcoming hearing on Thursday, but talking about this issue on the Sunday shows. Uh, They said uh, Zoe Lofgren says she expects to receive communications by Tuesday ahead of the hearing. And I think, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an investigator, but it's common sense that even if you delete phones back to factory settings, the messages aren't lost. They still exist somewhere, especially if you're communicating with someone who didn't delete their messages. And so I I do have confidence they would be able to get these messages, but more concerning is the overall story from Secret Service. I mean, it wasn't as if the inspector general was the only one asking for these communications. The Secret Service story is essentially, listen, this is no big deal. Don't ask questions because we had this program in place to already do this in January. And the inspector general didn't ask us for this communication until February. And so too bad, too sad. But that's not actually quite right because starting in January, there were multiple requests from congressional committees to DHS, which Secret Service is part of, to preserve all communications, right? Like everyone was asking for this because there was the impeachment trial going on. And so la-di-da, Secret Service just went ahead and deleted the messages curiously from January 5th and January 6th about events regarding what's probably one of the most momentous days in Secret Service history. I mean, you got to keep in mind, the Secret Service primarily has two jobs, right? Protect the president, protect the vice president. And on January 6th, those two duties came into conflict because the president issued a pressure campaign against the vice president that culminated in a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol that delayed the peaceful transfer of power. And now the DHS inspector general was reporting there wasn't even an after-action report. That seems like a an, an incredible dereliction of duty inside the Secret Service. Yeah, and one of the points that Adam Kinzinger made um, in his appearance on Sunday was um, that this would be really bizarre for the Secret Service to, to, to uh, as you said, Amanda, 
two of the most momentous days in Secret Service history, January 5th and January 6th, 2021, for the agency to delete all of its text messages. Like, that would be insane. That would be, I mean, the, you would want a, the record of what the of what you had done. I mean, there were all, Secret Service did a lot of good things, too. So mm-hmm. uh, I... I, I it was pretty clear to me that Kinzinger didn't see a reason why the why they would have done this. It would have had to be an accident, and it would have to be an amazing accident for it, for as you say, for the text not to be recoverable in any way. So I'm expecting these texts to show up on Tuesday, and for us to proceed from there. Now, even if we don't get the text, which I think is a big if, Secret Service needs to really produce an in-depth report, an after-action report of everyone's movements that day. I mean. It is just, how could they not examine themselves? And I think, you know, the first inclination is to expect something suspicious or malicious may have happened because this is so unbelievable. That said, the Secret Service has been plagued by a series of scandals caused by their own recklessness and willing to cover up for themselves. And I would recommend the book Zero Fail by Carol Lennig, who I mentioned earlier, uh, came out last year that not only looked at the history of the Secret Service, but how, you know, my interpretation, I don't know if she would say this, they they utterly failed Barack Obama many times. And it, it is sort of incredible that nothing terrible did happen to him. I don't know if you remember, remember all these fence jumpers that were getting close to the Capitol and the incident where a man actually fired shots on the White House while Obama and Michelle, his wife, were gone, but the children were there. And one of the daughters was even coming home that night. And they they didn't even report it to the president in real time. I mean, they sort of stuffed it. Uh, valets were discovering bullets in the, you know, the second floor windows where Michelle Obama liked to have coffee in the morning. And when you read it, which I really do recommend, there is just scandal after scandal of these guys going abroad and getting wasted, drunk in bars with prostitutes while they're on trips abroad on presidential detail. One of the higher ups, even, you know, after all that happened, I'm sure people kind of remember those prostitution scandals. They had a change in leadership and to celebrate the guy's new position, they went drinking at Fado out over in Chinatown, got, got drunk apparently. And then there was a suspicious package at the White House. They drove drunk into the crime scene. I mean, we like to think of the Secret Service as this very prestigious agency. And I I, I don't think it's lived up to its reputation in recent years, which is why you have these whistleblowers coming forward and telling these stories. But wow, there is a story here about what people, especially if the name Tony Ornato rings a bell, did that day. I'm really glad you brought up Ornato. Okay, so the Secret Service needs to worry not just about whether it is it preserves its reputation for protecting the president, whoever that is at the moment. In this case, it was Donald Trump. Also, the vice president, right? As you point out, those two were in conflict. The Secret Service now needs to worry about its reputation for protecting the United States of America. And that is to say, we have, in the case of Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel, a couple of Secret Service guys who, you, you may recall, Cassidy Hutchinson testified before the committee about the story that she heard about the, this, this sort of 
fight altercation, whatever it was, in the mm -hmm. presidential SUV on the, you know, they, Trump wanted to go to the Capitol and the Secret Service said, no, it's not safe. Not safe in part because it's not safe for the other guy we're trying to protect, Mike Pence. But anyway, it, she tells this story as it was told to her by one Secret Service guy, uh, or I guess at that, at that point out of, but then he's back in. Anyway, Tony Arnato, Bobby Engel, the actual Secret Service guy who was involved is sitting there in the room with her. She is told this story by one of them. The other one does not dispute it. And then after she testifies to this, these guys or somebody from Secret Service puts out word anonymously, mm -hmm. right, to NBC and I forget who else saying, you know what, our guy, the Secret Service agents are, are willing to testify that she's wrong about, she's, her story is wrong in the following respects. They pick out a couple of elements that they think they can dispute. They don't go on the record. This is anonymous. There's no, as far as I know, no negotiated, uh, successfully negotiated offer to testify on the record from them. So they're besmirching her anonymously. Then on top of that, we have these this, these text messages and, oh, we don't have the text anymore, like we thought they weren't important to preserve, which combines to create this image that the Secret Service is, I don't know how to say this politely, another one of these law enforcement agencies that was more loyal to Donald Trump than it was to the country. So I would encourage the Secret Service to rectify that impression. Yeah. And if people are looking for more on this, I did write a piece for the Bulwark today. And I did want to point out, I think there's three issues that we really need information from the Secret Service about what happened. The first is the one that you just mentioned there, Will, is the alleged altercation that took place in the motorcade when Trump was demanding that he be transported to the Capitol and that request was refused. A second is the communications that the Secret Service had with Trump about the weapons his rally goers possessed and Trump's desire to remove the mags, which is something Cassidy Hutchinson also talked about. And he wanted those mags removed so that more of his armed supporters could get into that rally because, quote, they're not here to hurt me. And so the Secret Service does have information about, about how all that went down. And then the other one is, of course, the conversations that took place about moving Pence to a secure location, perhaps outside the Capitol. Uh, part of the reporting, again, from Carol Lennig and Phil Ruckert, um, and I Alone Can Fix It, which came out last year, was that Tony Ornato had a conversation with White House aide Keith Kellogg uh, as Trump was being taken, or excuse me, Pence was taken to the secure location in which Tony Ornato allegedly said that they were going to take him to Andrew's air base. And Kellogg said, no, don't do that. I, I know you would take him to Alaska if you could. And Ornato's spokesperson, you know, not him, as you pointed out, denied that conversation. Weirdly, Kellogg has said since that he trusts any sworn testimony that Ornato has given to the committee. Ornato's already testified twice but I think there's a lot of wiggle room there because members of the committee have said publicly that they're dissatisfied with Ornato's answers. I mean, Adam Kinzinger pretty much came out and called him a liar on Twitter. And so just because Ornato may have given sworn testimony that is defensible does not mean at all that Ornato answered all their questions or came forward with the full story. And so I just wanted to end with one thought about how I think this gets sorted out. And it's that the Secret Service was protecting something or someone that day. 
But choices were made. And it was either Trump, the institutions, as we would expect them to do, of the office of president and vice president, or it's themselves. And I don't know which. Now let's talk about President Biden. He, of course, traveled to Saudi Arabia last week for what turned out to be sort of a controversial visit. Senator Bernie Sanders wasn't too happy. Well, let's listen to what Bernie Sanders had to say, and I want to get your reaction on the other side. You've referred to Saudi Arabia as a brutal dictatorship that crushes democracy. Should should Biden have gone? No, I, I don't think so. You have a, a leader of that country uh, who was involved in the murder of a Washington Post journalist. Uh, I don't think that that type of government should be rewarded uh, with a visit by the president of the United States. Well, in isolation, it is a fact that Mohammed bin Salman is a murderer, right? Uh, he directed, if did, didn't, he, did not, he did not participate with his bare hands, but he, he directed the murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, in 2018. Um, he's also been a tyrant at home in various ways, although arguably less of a tyrant than some of his predecessors. Anyway, he's a bad guy. And we said we would make him a pariah. And for a couple of years, we did, even though Donald Trump tried his best to prevent us from making him a pariah. Having said that, foreign policy is really difficult because you're not just dealing with one murderer. You're dealing with murderers everywhere. And one of those murderers is Vladimir Putin, right? And Vladimir Putin hasn't just directed one murder. He has overseen thousands and thousands of them. He, I mean... You know, in the last couple of weeks, Russia has been firing missiles into Ukrainian cities. The official UN count, the official count of civilian fatalities in Ukraine since the end of February is 5,000. Amanda, God knows what the actual number is, many times that. So we are trying to uh, unite the world, to maintain global unity against the guy who is murdering hundreds and hundreds of people a day, a week, in Ukraine. To do that, we need oil. We need oil from other suppliers so that we do not have to rely on Russian oil. And unfortunately, Saudi Arabia is sitting on a ton of oil, right? And we so we need help from this other murderer. And so weirdly, I'm going to defend this trip to Saudi Arabia. I mean, there were other reasons for it. Um, there was some Israel stuff going on. There's some general Mideast security stuff going on. But if the Saudi oil gets released onto the market, and there are already signs that that has begun, and if that oil allows the world to wean itself away from dependence on Russian oil so that Vladimir Putin can no longer fund this war machine that is killing thousands and thousands of people, that will be a net benefit for humanity and for life. So I'm in favor of it. Yeah, I, I take those points. I just, it's very hard. I, I don't understand why they couldn't have sent someone else. I mean, the image of President Biden getting out of that motorcade and fist bumping MBS, I mean, really, as soon as I saw it, my stomach turned a bit. And this is the same guy who said that he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah for what they did to Jamal Khashoggi. And then just turning around, I mean, just kind of, it, it was a casual, almost gleeful encounter. And I, I don't know why Biden did that. I really don't know. But that's a picture that's not going to go away. But, you know, I can put that aside. And 
I, I guess I would be willing to listen. I, I take all the points in that we can't let, you know, Russia and China take total control of our oil supply and we have to make a way to make other friends in the world. But I am not clear on what the United States got out of this trip. And in order to mitigate the damage of that photo op, I think the White House should be very clear in explaining what the takeaways were from that trip. What did we get out of it? What was the deliverable? Because I I think that's hard to quantify. But then additionally, I think this makes it a lot harder for the Democrats who wanted to prosecute the case against Jared Kushner for that big, fat, crony-tastic deal that he made with the Saudis after leaving the White House, because I guess we're all friends now. Yeah, I think Biden got a lot out of this. Um, it, it's I think that this trip was part of a, a package of things that happened around the same time. And there are signals from administration officials that things that happened around this were, you know, part of the deal. So one of them is that there's already been a statement from OPEC Plus that they were already starting to release more oil. This happened actually, they said they were going to do it in July and August. And there will need to be more of that. There was some stuff about Israel, you know, allowing flights to and from Israel over Saudi airspace. The other thing that is really important that a lot of Americans don't pay attention to, we paid a lot of attention to the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And it was horrific, but it was one guy. It was one guy who happened to work for the Washington Post, who was a journalist. And so there was a ton of attention paid to it. There have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people killed in Yemen in a civil war in which the Saudis have been a major player. And that has been going on for years. And that is way, way more than than the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And one of the things that happened around the time of this, of this Biden making this trip is the Saudis helped do a truce. They've established a truce in Yemen. They did it at the beginning of April, then they renewed it at the beginning of June. It's going through the beginning of August at this point, and hopefully it will continue. And every day that we can maintain that truce and move toward a political solution, lives are being saved. And honestly, Amanda, the lives of those Yemenis are just as important as the lives of an American or an American resident. Yeah, some of that and analyzing you know, the amount of murders and killings is really hard to grapple with, but perhaps that is the nature of real politique that must be played on the global stage. Okay, well, now I want to turn to a subject that I'm pretty sure you were completely right about last week when we spoke. Do you know what it is? Uh, is it the abortion case? It is. So we have learned since we spoke last week, when that was happening, we had reporting that a 10-year-old girl had been raped and impregnated in Ohio and was forced to flee out of state to obtain a medically necessary abortion. Uh, Joe Biden had picked up the story, and I was pretty critical of Biden for championing, elevating, platforming that story when the reporting wasn't completely evident and it wasn't confirmed by a number of news outlets. There were trusted outlets talking about it, but it was not confirmed by police reports. And I was really uncomfortable with the fact that the White House had elevated it and given the right-wing noise machine such an easy way to poke holes in that story. And so that was my perspective on it. I think some people may have misunderstood where I was coming from, But I just wanted to clarify that. But regardless, 
Will was right. The story was 100% true. And now we're all forced to grapple with the real documented reality of a 10-year-old girl being raped, becoming pregnant, having to go across state lines to obtain the medical treatment she needed to survive because, you know, a 10-year-old girl is not equipped to deliver a child. They're just not there in terms of their development. And still the questions continue. So I just want to get your take on how that story developed and what you thought watching that all unfold. Well, first of all, okay, in Amanda's defense, let me speak to those <laughs> of you who are listening to this podcast who then tweeted to me about what Amanda had said, right? And like, there was a lot of rage among pro-choice people about like, how could Fox News, you know, like attack this and like attack. And look, there were definitely conservative media attacking this story as bogus when they didn't know it was bogus, right? And it turned out, of course, not to be bogus. Amanda is not one of those people. What Amanda said, and I challenge you to go back to last Monday's podcast and play it again, Amanda used the following words. She said the story was not vetted, and she said the story was not nailed down. That is absolutely true. They took what the, the, the Biden took the story as it was initially reported, and it was at that time thinly sourced, and he put it out there, and reporters tried to check it out. The Washington Post tried to check it out, and they couldn't get more information at that time. Very shortly thereafter, the information did come out, and it was pretty solid, as solid as it gets, a confession from the rapist, right? And so sometimes you just have to wait for the story to develop. It doesn't mean it's not true. It means it's not yet as verified as we would like it to be. So just I want to set that aside. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. What I want people to understand about this rape case and, and what cases like this are going to do to the national conversation around abortion is... We're going through three stages of the end of Roe, right? The Dobbs decision was just the first stage. That's just the Supreme Court saying, hey, we're pulling out of this. You guys do whatever you want. That's not the court telling you even to ban abortion, right? The next stage is legislatures acting to ban abortions or going to court and reinstating the trigger laws so that, oh my God, there's actually a law in my state now that says abortion is illegal. And then the third stage is the enforcement of these laws. And so at every one of these stages, there is significant potential for an escalation of alarm and outrage and backlash. And with this case of the Ohio girl, we're starting to see that, right? This is an extremely bad case for pro-lifers to argue. It is, as you say, Amanda, a 10-year-old girl. She is a rape victim. Uh, it, I mean, it's really hard to come up with a worst case to argue. And yet, as I think we will discuss, the uh, attorney general of Indiana has decided to to make a fight about this case by, um, I mean, do you want to talk about this letter that he sent? Yeah, I absolutely do. Yes, yes. Please get into it. So the, I think you know more about this than I do, but uh, uh, Todd Rakita, I think is his name. That's right. Uh, the attorney general of Indiana sent a letter, this was about three or four days ago, to the governor of Indiana, both of these guys Republicans, and he's basically threatening the doctor, the doctor who did the abortion on this 10-year-old girl, with prosecution if she can't prove that she filed certain records. And Amanda, you probably know more about the exact records, the, the forms that he's demanding from her. Do you know exactly what they were? Yeah, well, first of all, I think there was just a huge rush to judgment here because it was like as soon as the story was confirmed, like a switch, there were people at Fox News uh, 
turning attention to different aspects of the story. And Todd Rakita, his former congressman, he he jumped on this by rushing to the Fox News cameras, uh, appearing on Jesse Waters' show and saying that he was going to investigate with intent to prosecute the doctor who provided the abortion based on the notion that he had that she didn't, the doctor didn't report it properly. And I mean, I, I really want to credit Sarah Rump over at Mediate because I didn't, you know, I don't watch Fox except for clips on <laughs> Twitter and on Mediate. Uh, she was documenting what had happened here. And it is really shameful what Fox News and Todd Rakita did. I He went on the program on Thursday night as, as real reporters were getting the documents um, that confirmed the doctor did report it. They ignored that, blew right by it went to the primetime segment, had a big Chiron. The Chiron said, I'm just going to set this up. You can go look at it online. It's Rakita speaking with a photo of the doctor, big blaring headline, doc failed to report abortion of abuse victim. If the doctor had done that, they could lose their license. They could be charged with a crime in Indiana. So that's a pretty serious charge. But then it turns out the doctor did report it. This was all reported in accordance to the law, but that didn't stop Rakita for one hot second from going and essentially making a target. And you know how these doctors get targeted. You know that's a thing. You know people try to um, destroy these kind of clinics. You know, what are you agreed on it? Violence like this is not the answer, but there's a history of this happening. Put that woman, the doctor's face up in the big Chiron and accused her of a crime without even bothering to read the reporting that was coming out that night that confirmed, yes, in fact, the doctor had reported it, the police were aware, and the rest. Oh, my God. Okay, so I, I had not watched the Fox show. So thank you also, Meet to Media, I, because I, I didn't know about this, and that, that makes it that much worse. He's going on TV to make it, and also to imply that it is false. Those of you on the right, if your point was that Joe Biden shouldn't go out and say this story is true before he knows it is true, the same principle applies in reverse. You, Fox News, or guest on Fox News, you shouldn't go out and say the story isn't true till you know it isn't true. And clearly, you didn't know it wasn't true because it turned out that it was true. So first of all, strike against him for claiming the story was false or acting like it was false. The next thing I wanted to say about this, though, is that, I mean, he's not just another guy going out and saying the story is false. He's the attorney general, and he's threatening legal action. And that escalates this to a whole new level, right? Because now, and I hope folks are listening to our conversation, because I assure you folks who are listening to this, Amanda Carpenter is pro-life. She is very pro-life. And I think you should listen to the discomfort she is feeling about the way in which a pro-life idea, right, the protection of unborn children, is being enforced here. Uh, the, the, the threat implied to, the, to a doctor who provided an abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim uh, is, is a signal of the ugliness of what will be done to enforce some of these laws. And even people who are quite pro-life are going to shrink back from that. And there is a significant danger of a backlash to the pro-life movement and to the Republican Party over this. And also, just as a rule of law matter, I, I'm not sure how an Indiana attorney general 
prosecutes an Ohio doctor, but that didn't stop Fox News or Todd Rakita. But it seems like the key for the midterms, at least, is Democrats fighting back about this kind of stuff, explaining what happens, why it matters. And I I guess, you know, Democrats have kind of had the reputation of not being willing to fight. But I am watching someone that clearly wants to run for president in 2024, who is telling everyone how willing he is to fight. And that's Gavin Newsom. And so let's listen to this clip of Gavin Newsom doing just that. You have to also recognize what you're up against. And right now, we're up against the ruthlessness of a Republican Party. And I say that not naively. I don't say that even blithely. That's not a cheap shot. You see what's happening to all the progress we've made in the 21st century. All of the rights that we in many ways have taken for granted that have been afforded since the 60s are being rolled back in real time. This is a totally different moment. And we have to wake up with a different mindset and not just no mindset in terms of just a collaborative mindset, a cup of tea and everyone's gonna work together to get along, figure ways to, to advance the collective cause. And that's where the party needs to come in. Democrats need the Democratic Party, not the president, not a speaker, not a elected office holder, the party, the infrastructure, I think has to organize with more ferocity of focus, more determination to set the agenda set the course and put the other party on the defense. They are dominating the narrative. The facts aren't on their side, but they're dominating the narrative. And in this world right now, you dominate the narrative, you win. And that's what I'm worried about. And that's what I'm expressing. Well, well, is he right? Is this something the Democratic base wants to hear, are willing to listen to, are willing to look for Newsom for leadership? I don't know about whether Newsom is the guy, but you know, it's interesting that Newsom is saying kind of what Joe Biden has actually said before, except no one hears that kind of vigor when they listen to Joe Biden. Uh, I, I mean, that's kind of the message that Joe Biden, when he, he spoke at the White House after the Dobbs decision, it's that's kind of what he was trying to say. What's interesting to me about that quote you just played from Gavin Newsom is he talks, he used the word progress, you know, we've we made all this progress. But then he said, the progress we made, the rights we got are being rolled back. And that is just a crucial thing that progressives need in this election. If people come out to vote when things are taken away from them, that is a an advantage that conservatives normally have. Conser- conservatives are the people who say, hey, you had this thing and then the liberals are taking it away from you. But in this case, this is a an abortion right that was around for 50 years. So it's kind of part of the, it was part of the fabric of America and now it's being taken away. So Absolutely, Newsom is right that progressives, that Democrats should take advantage politically of the opportunity to be the conservatives and to say, we want back the life we had. Yeah. And I guess the question is, you know, what else are you fighting for? Because I hear a lot of dissatisfaction from the Democratic base in that, you know, we're just fighting to get maintain what we already have. You know, we want more. We want more. And I I watched the speech. But Remarks from a Texas Democrat named James Tellerico really caught my eye over the weekend because he was saying a little bit of what Newsom had said there and that Democrats aren't fighting hard enough. But then he also went into a segment into what he thinks Democrats should be fighting for. And let's listen to that. The buck stops with the leader of our party, the leader of our country, President Biden. Mr. President, 
You saved our nation once by defeating Trump. Now we need you to restore its soul by defeating Trumpism. We need, we need you and our nation's leaders to start using every tool in the toolbox to protect our freedom. Lease federal land to abortion providers. Declare a public health emergency. Impeach justices who lied under oath. Prosecute Trump and his fellow insurrectionists. And finally call the filibuster what it is, a Jim Crow relic that's standing between the American people and cheap prescription drugs, universal pre-K, and a livable planet. There's a lot of cheering in that clip. Yeah, but, you know, if the audience, instead of being sort of a partisan audience, was the public, you wouldn't be hearing that because I've looked at polling on a lot of that stuff. And Amanda, it does not poll well. Um, You will not get, you know, the idea, first of all, leasing federal land, a a federal state fight over this where, yeah, we discussed this last week. Right, right. That's kind of a disaster. Impeaching justices, no, there's, you don't have support for that. And there's, honestly, it's up to, it's on Susan Collins that she didn't sniff out that Brett Kavanaugh was going to do this. Um, the, the, and the, and overturning the filibuster. No, you don't have support for that. And it would be a disaster if you did. Republicans have structural advantages that are likely to give them, not Democrats, 51 votes in the Senate. So you really don't want to get rid of the filibuster. That was, that's not smart. So I think this is a guy sort of playing to a partisan crowd. It's not really a winning agenda. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I wanted to play that clip. I'm not trying to nut pick fringe figures from the Democratic Party. But it's because I I haven't really heard someone put together ideas that I think would animate the Democratic base. I mean, clearly that is a partisan audience, just just like you said. But man, I know I, I, I work for them. These politicians that go and work that grassroots crowd and really get a following. I'm not saying this guy will be the one to do it, but he seemed pretty telegenic. Um, he had a good speech that he put together. It seemed to be working in that room. And he was putting forward ideas that you hear sort of championed by the liberal activists here and there. And he was really going for it. And short of Joe Biden or some other national figure putting together a different kind of platform that can get applause lines, that vacuum will be filled by people like Tellerico. Yeah. Okay. But I think that, so the version he delivered got him a lot of applause. Here's a different version of what I think he's trying to do that I think would work better. If you want to get people to turn out to vote, um, I would say, don't just like play that crowd in the room. Those people are going to vote. Those people are active already. You want to get midterm non-voters, Amanda, right? The people we know stay home. They were Democrats or they voted Democratic in the last election. Now Joe Biden's not on the ballot. Trump's not on the ballot. They stay. Well, why should they show up? Here's why they should show up. You do go back to Dobbs. You do go back to the Supreme Court, but you don't, you, you don't, it's not really about impeachment. The point is that the Supreme Court is the one institution that Republicans control right now, right? The Republicans are the out party. They expect to do well in the midterms because Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House. So Republicans are like, hey, we're out of power. Elect us. We'll change everything. What Democrats need to do is say, we're out of power in the place that matters most right now, and that is the United States Supreme Court. We need to be electing Democrats back to the Senate, 
and we need to maintain control of the White House. You need to get out and vote Democratic because the Supreme Court is controlled by Republicans and will be for some time. And we need to rally against that. That's a message that I think you can get people to turn out for. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Supreme Court is the winning message, but there is so much writing on these senatorial candidates that are really in a position to lead that kind of national messaging for the Democrats. People like Raphael Warnock, um, who would really be a credit to him if he can win that Georgia seat again. Uh, Fetterman in Pennsylvania. You have other people um, like the candidates in Arizona, Ohio. And the Democrats are certainly leading in fundraising right now. They will have the ability to spread whatever messages that they like. Um, It's just a matter of what they choose, what they think will not only animate the liberal base who they absolutely need to turn out to vote for them, but will also create that permission structure for, you know, the kind of Republican, centrist, moderate, suburban types to feel safe in voting for them, um, just like they voted for Joe Biden in 2020. But we will leave it there for today. Um, I can't wait to talk to you again next week. And Charlie Sykes will be back in the seat behind the microphone tomorrow. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Amanda. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow do this all over again.